Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We made this. Hello, this is Russ. Recently, I spoke with the actor and writer Tucker Smallwood. There were some issues with Mr. Smallwood's microphone during the recording that were not able to be resolved. Unfortunately, this means that there are portions of the conversation that are a bit difficult to hear, especially if you're in a noisy environment. The recording was EQ'd and compressed substantially to try to improve the intelligibility as much as possible. In addition, because there are a few comments which refer to it, this conversation was recorded a few days before the 2020 U.S. presidential election, and of course during the COVID pandemic. Finally, I want to let you all know that the following conversation contains some strong language, and many difficult topics are brought up, and this includes PTSD and suicide. Mr. Smallwood was incredibly generous with his time and shared much about many personal topics, for which I greatly thank him again. And now on to the interview. The truth is in here. I'm Russ Hugo, and I'll be your host today. Today, I'm honored to be joined by none other than Tucker Smallwood. For 1013 fans, he played, of course, Sheriff Andy Taylor in the season four X-Files episode, Home, and Stephen Kiley on the season two Millennium episode, Goodbye Charlie, as well as a regular Morgan and Wong space in Above and Beyond, appearing in Star Trek Voyager Enterprise. But however, in addition to his extremely successful acting career on screen and stage, he is also an author of the book Return to Eden, which has received substantial critical praise. The book explores the issues of PTSD in his service as a lieutenant in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War, where he was awarded the Combat Infantryman's Badge, Bronze Star, and Purple Heart. And if I'm correct from reading your bio, you're also a polyglot. It sounds like you can speak Vietnamese and probably German, at least. I, I have in my life spoken fluent Greek, Vietnamese, and German. However, truth be told, I have a minor in German from college. Um, if I spend a few days in German or listening to German for a few hours, much will come back to me. But it's like a muscle. It becomes flaccid when it's not used. And I have comparatively few conversations these days or opportunity to speak with someone. Um, a number of, of, of curious things have, have happened over this year. This has been a curious year. I've been assisting a young woman in Texas who is writing her doctoral dissertation on the military advisor in Vietnam. And she is the child of, of Vietnamese immigrants uh, who were refugees, both people. And uh, she's a very interesting young woman. And so as I find myself involved in projects like that, the, the music comes back to me. There are times I dream in Greek or Vietnamese or German. 
But um, as I said, if you don't use it on an active basis, it just withers away. Uh, the science out there, from what we've seen, the effect of having those skills and those talents, especially early on with brain plasticity and the rest. And that maybe kind of ties into one of the questions that was impressed upon me watching some of your performances in your dialogue. And I had to approach this as sort of a musicality, the delivery of your... And I want to clarify, I'm not talking about specifically singing in the scene in Millennium for Goodbye Charlie with the karaoke and all of that. I'm thinking more of in the sense of a grasp and a delivery, a texture, a rhythm to some of the dialogues that you perform. And maybe as a layperson, I'm not describing it correctly. But then reading your bio, I was not surprised to see and learning more about all of your work and early on studying the violin, your ongoing work in the blues. And so wondering maybe with your skills with language, how that's informed your interest with music. And then, of course, your acting. I know it's a broad question. I, I, I found that one of the more intriguing possibilities uh, that you had suggested we might discuss. I, I thought it was quite insightful. Um, on a number of different levels, Greek and German have more in common than Vietnamese because they are much more traditional, traditional meaning Western. Um, they rely upon grammar and uh, construction as opposed to a tonic language, which is Vietnamese and relies much more on subtle audio tones. I have a strong background in music and innate uh, sensibilities in music. And I found Vietnamese the easiest of the three languages because I have a nuanced ear. But people who are tone deaf are relatively less facile, less capable of differentiating between tones, struggle with tonic languages. My characters have a cadence. And uh, again, it's insightful that you picked up on that. There's something about a cadence that lends itself to authenticity. And um, one can't necessarily say, I understand what's going on here, but you know what, when you hear it or you see it, you say, this just for whatever reason rings true and this doesn't quite. This is someone attempting to be and this isn't someone who is being. So I think my success- the other question you had asked was, I graduated from the University of Maryland with a degree in TV production direction and directed for NBC, uh, the affiliate in Baltimore, WBAL, for about four or five months until I was drafted. And I was at that time the, the first director of color to be hired by them. That was my background. It had never in my life um, when I was drafted and I was, I guess, 23 years old. It had never for a day in my life occurred to me that I should become an actor. Okay. That wasn't, it wasn't any, it was, it probably had less reality than becoming an astronaut. Okay. And, and that had pretty damn little reality. It just wasn't for other reasons. Um, there, at that time, there were damn few role models. There were incredibly few people of color who appeared on television or on the silver screen. And with any regularity, there were a handful. Um, they were very unique. Uh, it's not like, you know, I'm going to become a psychiatrist or I'm going to become um, a, 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 a law clerk to a Supreme Court justice. Uh, it just had very little reality. But after Vietnam, during the months I spent being healing at Walter Reed and 
a few other facilities prior to that, I asked my doctors, um, what can I expect? What am I, you know, what are my life expectancies? And they said, five years, maybe, maybe, maybe 10. We don't, we don't know. That's the reality. We don't know because people who present with your physical circumstances don't survive. So we have no data. And I, my records are part of the Vietnam Vascular Registry, which is part of the history of what doctors have learned about. Doctors always learn a lot about medicine and during wars. They have a lot of young, healthy bodies on which to practice. And so we always expand our, our, our medical knowledge during times like that. But I, 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 I resolved, I, I, I knew when I was injured that I was dying. And I accepted it. I was at peace with that. I just wanted to get finish the job. But I had had a remarkable life at that point, and I was barely 25. And I I knew I had a remarkable life, but I had no regrets. I had I had ridden my rims, my tires right down to the rim. Okay, um, I had I had seen a lot of the world, and I had no complaints. I was at peace. And I I was shocked to discover that I awoke in um, Walter Reed, or well, in third field initially, alive, I was shocked. Uh, that's the only word for it. I mean, I, 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 I literally knew I didn't have any right to be alive, and I burst into tears when I realized that I was, in fact, alive. And so knowing my time was finite, I thought, I know some technical things, I have no idea how to talk to an actor. I would like to direct some, you know, things other than, you know, news or learning to read or whatnot. Um, so then I need to learn the process of acting so that I can communicate with the artist. And so I, I flew, I flew out to use, I flew out to here, California. I met with a guy at UCLA for a master's. He was a disciple of Sanford Meisner. I went to New York and met with Sanford Meisner who was one of the triumvirates of Stanislavski, um, Apostles, um, Stella Adler, Sanford Meisner, and Lee Strasberg. And Sandy said, I want you here in the fall. And I said, well, then I'll be here in the fall. And so I extended for three months. Uh, as a young, I was supposed to get out on the 3rd of June. School wouldn't start until September. I didn't have a summer job. I, mean, I wasn't wealthy. I was going on the GI Bill. And so I extended for three months as, the, as a senior lieutenant teaching young officer candidates how to survive in the bush and how to patrol, um, how, to, how, to, how to do raids, how to do, you know, air mobile and uh, assaults and whatnot. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 
That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And uh, I loved it. I, I had good information. I was a master instructor. I, I, I loved imparting knowledge that might keep some of these young men alive. And then I moved to New York and I resigned my commission and I studied acting for a year and a half. So that is how I became an actor. And the point was I lay in bed for months at Walter Reed. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It was a very lonely time. Um, my, my, my family was in Europe. Um, I had a handful of friends that would come to see me occasionally, but it was a very lonely time. And um, I remembered something that had happened. Uh, the week before I flew to Vietnam, I'd come to New York to see a girlfriend. And uh, she took me to see a play, uh, Big Time Buck White. It starred an actor named Dick Anthony Williams. It, the role was later played by Muhammad Ali in New York. And it was, it was black theater. This is 1969. I had grown up on classical theater, opera, you know, the Escalese, uh, Euripides. I had never seen anything like this. This was electric. And the actor, Dick Anthony Williams, the lead, um, just, you know, I, I, it was riveting. And I could remember that performance months later as I lay in the dead. I thought, well, Jesus, that, that's about as exciting as anything I can imagine. We, we should, you know, figure out a little bit more about that. And so I came to New York to study acting. I studied with Sandy Meisner for a year and a half. During my second year, Jeff Goldblum and I got kicked out um, within a week of each other. He got a play and I got a soap opera. I was a waiter, you know, at the Goose and Gherkin, which is beside Lutes, which is a very famous New York restaurant. And I would come home at night. I was living in Alphabet City. Smack was really um, everywhere in New York. I felt like I was back in the bush. I could feel myself being hunted. I could feel the eyes. And one night I had to go out of my window because junkies were breaking down the front door. And I realized you either have to get out of here or get a gun. And I don't, I didn't want a gun. So as it happened, this man came in, it was a customer and he said, um, you're a hell of a waiter. And I said, thank you, I'm a better actor. <laughs> and he said, I'll bet you are. And he happened to be the producer of an NBC soap. And the next day he had me read for, uh, you know, he had me on the show as an under, uh, as, a, as an extra, walk on. Um, and just before I went on, he had the floor director say, give him a word. So then I become an under five, which means I get paid a little bit more. And I did it and it was fun. And then he called me to the office and he had me read a script. And when I finished, he offered me a role, a job for $400 a day. And um, I, I knew but Sandy was going to be very unhappy with me because they had a hard and fast rule at the playhouse. He, no work, no work. We, we cannot have you being seduced or, 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 or corrupted uh, by money or by, you know, commerce or anything else. We are teaching you purity and they work, they work. Hmm. But I knew my time was limited and I just didn't feel it was an opportunity I could 
pass up. I thought, this is the direction the horse is going. Try to ride him that way. And so I left. And Sandy didn't speak to me for some years. He had been very, very patient and kind with me. I was, I hadn't been home from Vietnam for a year when I was in his class. And I was pretty fragile in a lot of ways. Uh, and I had been very shut down as a human being, as a commander in, in you know, as an advisor. And he would say to me, he used to say, you watch yourself all the time, you watch yourself. Why do you do that? And I said, oh, I'm afraid I might hurt somebody. And he said, we're not going to let you hurt anybody. <laughs> he, he had no idea what I was capable of. None. But he taught me to trust myself. And I learned that I could be trusted. I might damage a table or a door, but I wasn't going to hurt another human. That was, that was very big. Um, again, you know, I was pretty traumatized, still am for uh, uh, whatever, um, but the point is, I saw him and I saw Stella treat some people with shortness and impatience. That would have shattered me. They were very kind and loving and generous to me. I saw Stella in the summer when I came out to California. And I told her about meeting with Coppola for an hour and talking about things. And she said, yes, that's wonderful, but you mustn't do the movie. And I, she says, you're, you're not ready. You haven't dealt with it. You're going to come unglued. And that was one of the, the, the lucky things of studying with Sandy and studying with Stella, as opposed to Lee. They, they wanted truth, living truthfully under imaginary circumstances, but they didn't want artists to use their trauma in their work. Lee didn't care. That led to some interesting performances and some very neurotic actors. But Sammy and Stella taught me to live truthfully under imaginary circumstances. They taught me to prepare. They taught me to create a history. They taught me a lot of wonderful things that I cherish. And feeling was truly being reborn to me. Once I had my full emotional range, I, 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 I wasn't going to give it up. I just wasn't going to sacrifice it. So that's a long roundabout way of saying I came into acting character on a soap opera over those initial years. I enjoyed great success uh, on any number of levels, however you want to equate it. Payment, fame, attention, awards, nominations. I was a very electric person. I was very much in the moment. Um, I was working on borrowed time, and I didn't piss away any of it. I loved everything I got to do, children's TV, documentaries, commercials, theater. I, I loved it all. I loved being with other people and being creative. And um, I was a very happy human being by and large. It wasn't until late in the 70s that my wheels began to come off the tracks. But for those first seven or eight years, I was incredibly successful. I did very well in all different mediums. And then I, you know, I had to reinvent myself as a, as a team. There was a time when uh, after doing 100 commercials, I suddenly wasn't that guy. And yet then my agents discovered, well, he can cross over. They don't necessarily know he's a person of color. They may know it if they want that, but they don't have to. And I did a thousand voiceovers. So again, I kept rolling with the punches, but it wasn't until something bad happened in life while I was doing a play in the late 70s that I was triggered 
Um, I use that word advisedly because I now know that I have PTSD. I, I wasn't diagnosed until 1988. However, eight or nine years after returning from Vietnam, the wheels were starting to come off. Um, that's why they call it post. And I began to realize if you die anytime soon, it'll probably be because of how you've treated yourself since Vietnam rather than what happened to you in Vietnam. And um, I, among other things, was suffering from survivor guilt. I shouldn't be here by any number of measures. I'm not saying I'm not willing to be here. I'm ungrateful, but statistically, I shouldn't be. And a lot of people who I very much respect and care for aren't here. And um, the mind is a curious thing to waste. It's also a curious thing to live with. One of the things it does is when you feel that kind of guilt, you begin to subvert your own reality. And so I had affection and wealth and attention and respect and a lot of qualities that I didn't feel deserving of because I was breathing in and out and my and friends I cared about weren't. So I set about destroying it. And I, I, I was pretty good at it. <laughs> uh, I was pretty good at it. Anyway, um, so I was, I was a very, I was a successful artist. I was a very unhappy human. But um, many of my roles came about because I would look at the text and get a gestalt. Uh, this is how I see it. And often I would go into a session and the producer would say, wow, that's, that's not at all what we had in mind. But that's interesting. That's valid. And because I had such commitment to my choices, it stood out. And so I was able to succeed by, in, 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 at, at times, um, giving them a new way of looking at something and doing it with such conviction that it was compelling. And a lot of roles have a cadence, whether it's a, an authority figure, whether it's a, you know, a, a victim, whether it, you know, they have a cadence. Now, the military cadence or the authority cadence is fundamental to my earlier life. And so that was easy to assume. What I love so much about working with Glenn and Jim on space is that they allowed me to be who I was as a human being 25 years later. My values, my sensibilities were the same. And I was a, an older, more mature man. And that's priceless. Uh, there will never be a character. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As meaningful um, and as expressive for me as Ross was. It was flattering because in those days in airports, you had recruiting offices in the airport themselves in a little glass case. And I would travel a lot filming all over the world. And I would go through airports and, and guys would come running out of those little glass offices and stop me. I watch your show. I watch your show every week. I make sure my son watches that show. And that was so flattering to me because it was so evident, Jim and Gwen, there was a respect for what those men do. And it, and it resonated with people who were on active duty. They liked seeing themselves depicted in a certain way. You know, it was reinforcement. I knew how special getting to collaborate with Jim and Gwen was. I knew intuitively by that kind of feedback, by my own sense of truth, uh, by the fact that they allowed me to share in or express my points of view, or initially they wanted Russ to have a CMA. And I said, he, he doesn't need that. Uh, I regret a Blue Max. Uh, it's, it's a lot to live up to. We ended up with the Navy Cross, which was more than enough. But the point is, I've met with Probably. I've had dinner with a couple of dozen CMH recipients aboard the Intrepid years ago. I've met with them, a number of them over the years. They are singular human beings. And it is as though they have been touched by God. It, they carry that with them. There is a grace amongst every the personalities are different. They're big, rough men. They're small, fragile men. There is a grace. Um, and it was very clear that they walked on water for one moment in their lives. What they did was just fucking transcendent. And, and, and they, it, it's not a burden. Uh, it's, they carry it with grace. They carry that weight with grace. And I just didn't want that responsibility. Every time, oftentimes when you see some lead in a show, he's got this or he's got that, you know, to give him cred, to give him warrior cred or cop cred or whatever cred. And I said, he, he doesn't. He's good at what he does. I think my my energy and my conviction will carry the day, uh, but let's not. And I and I was grateful that they were secure. That's the thing. They were secure artists. The insecure artists don't allow the people working for them to have input because then it begins to question, do I know what I'm doing? And there's sometimes when people want you because you have expertise, or, or, or inside skinny. And there's some people who don't want you because they don't want to be called on, on, on their decision. So, you know, the, I accept that. It's your project, dude. <laughs> but it's, it's very clear that, that distinction, that dichotomy is very, very clear. So, again, I've, I've had some, some wonderful, some breaks and, and, and having met and having to collaborate with Jim Wong and, and, and Glenn Morgan it's just one of those wonderful, happy accidents in my life.
And from what I've heard from them, they have echoed that. You know, I have a birthday card in my bedroom. Um, it's probably, I don't know, it's 25, 20, 25 years old, but they said the things to me that you want, the people for whom you work, to say to you about how they feel about you. And this is that problem. So, um, they, as I said, they're very dear to me. Um, but, you know, when I got the job, it's so odd. Sometimes, you know, that old saying, that adage, things work out the way they're supposed to work out, you know? And I always say, oh, bullshit, come on. Things work out the way they work out. However, at, that, at the time that came along, I was doing this PlayStation 5 shoot for um, Sony. And it was a three-day shoot. It's just me. Agile Warrior was the name of the game. And uh, it was just me, medium, close-up, long, of drill with the missions. And it's, you know, and it's intense. And there's no breathing. There's no, no, no breath, no niceness. It's intense. And um, there was an audition that came along. And a guy said, hey, you got something here. Well, Jeffrey, it looks interesting. Mike and I make a better thing to break down. Wow, that does sound like something I never thought of. I loved it. I'd love to be seen for it. And he said, okay. And they arranged for me a meeting with um, Jimmy Glenn um, on the second day of my Sony shoot. And I asked the guys, you know, they've been saying, you're amazing with this. We never dreamed this could be as tight as it is. This is such great stuff. Um, and I said, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a role in another project. And they could see me today. Uh, could you let me go for an hour or so to go over and meet? And he talked to me. Said, yeah, no. And it was, you know, I, I mean, it really was, well, there's a lot of ways you can say thank you to somebody. And, you know, one of them is maybe just cutting him a little slack when they have a need. But I, 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 I give myself props. I didn't help. I went back and did my work. And it was grueling work because I was the only talent. It was just shot after shot after shot. Um, there was no run up. And um, I came back the third day and I, and I went home and I slept, I think, for about, I don't know, 14 hours. I was just burned out. And um, I went, I got some flowers and I went to my commercial agent because we had negotiated the shit out of this mother and we knew we were going to do well. And I said, it was, it was really, it was nice. And he said, oh, they go. I said, it was great. But my, 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 my talent agent said something and, and they wouldn't let me go. They said, oh, wow. Why don't you call us? We would have worked it out with them. I said, you know, I don't want to have to ask for it. You know, if you want to, if, 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 if somebody says we care and we value you, there are ways to express it. And at that moment, my pager, this is back in the days when you had pages, <laughs> my pager went off on my hip. And it was my talent agent saying, they didn't like anybody who saw you today. They want to see you tomorrow. And I went home. And I prepared and I went in and I didn't have to work very hard. That's important. You don't have to, you don't want to have to work hard. You want it to just come off of you because it is in you. And it did. And it was, you can have somebody who's really good and you can have somebody who understands the guy and is the guy. And if you see one, you might be convinced, but if you see them both, you say, oh, well, you know, problem B. That's, that's really more authentic to me. And it was like that. And, and the point was, if I had gone in on that second day of shooting, I'd have been stressed and I'd be, you know, whatever, and I might have tried too hard or whatever. In this case, I was relaxed. I was just myself. 
I, I just gave, gave it the values that it deserved. And they said, we, you know, we, we want to do this, we want to do this, we want to do this, we want to do this. And if you would be, I said, I'm interested. Ask me. Just ask me. It was such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I started as a guest star, and then I became a special guest star. And, and then I did the intermission or the middle of the season, I was uh, offered a contract. And it's just a very unusual progression in the business. Um, it just doesn't work like that very often. It was um, the role of my of my life. Um, I, it'll always be the, the character I care about most. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to um, have had the opportunity to create it. And um, just as having worked for Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, and so that led to a number of other opportunities with their projects. Jim and Glenn, um, after our season was over, and they um, and uh, they um, let us go. My contracts, um, they you know they went on with Millennium and the X Files and whatnot. And I remember getting the script for the X Files, and I went to a pizzeria Uno, more Uno, pizzeria Uno, eat this Chicago pizza. It's not out here anymore. It's in Chicago, and um. I'm reading the script while I'm waiting for my pizza. And the woman asked me, she came up to the hostess, are you okay? I said, yeah. She said, because you're going, oh, 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 God. <laughs> it was unconsciously, because of what they had written was just so horrific. And I'm sitting there reading, oh, God, oh, God, no. <laughs> it wasn't laughing either. It was awful. <laughs> oh, that was so much fun. Oh, gosh. And I remember getting to, to Vancouver, and we shot my death scene the first night um, of shooting. And I had, I had uh, you know, I'm a paratrooper. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm physical. Of course, I can do my own stunts. Come on. Play red ball, lapel. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there's a reason the guys get paid. Okay, we got a concrete floor. These, 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 these boots are throwing me about like a feather. And I forgot to tuck my head at one point and I just, you know, my head smacked the floor and I, I saw stars and I saw three and I said, listen, when you shoot my point of view, defocus the camera because that's how I'm seeing everything. And so at that point I said, let the stop man earn his pay, schmuck. Uh, and, and it was great fun that night, but it turned out none of that footage was used because Glenn Carter said, you know, you, you, your work was good, it was solid, but the bad guys were lit like Shirley Temple, okay? The, he, the lighting designer at the, the, for that shot was not comfortable working in the darkness that Chris and, and the values of that show demanded. He was let go that night. A new lighting designer was brought on to, um, and, you know, the lighting designer. And I had to stay an extra four or five days to reshoot my death scenes. Um, but um, I, I just thought that was interesting. You know, uh, the people had said, they see my, my brain splatter. Uh, what, what the imagination does, I, I, there was a moment where I let my hand fall into the pool of blood, and there's a splatter. But you know, when it's dark and you can't quite see you, your imagination thinks that's the wonderful thing about horror, you know? So uh, I, I love that. And I remember I was wandering around downtown Vancouver one day, uh, I was off for that um, couple hours, and, a, you know, this big tall guy, you know, calls off to me. Hey, Connor, hey, hey. You know, good looking guy. And I'm sitting there saying, oh, fuck is that? Uh, 
It's one of the Peacock brothers. I stayed away from these guys, and their makeup was horrific. And I didn't want to have, you know, a sense of them as people because I wanted to be able to use that in my reaction to them. Um, but these were these were big visible guys. And uh, by the time they got on a makeup, they were pretty fucking scary. I still have a tough time getting through the episode personally. There's a lot to admire about it, but it has its reputation for a reason. It did. It was the first, well, Chris said it was the it was the most controversial episode of the series, but it was the first episode not to be rerun. Um and 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 that was interesting. But um then there was they had a, a, a marathon every I think um Halloween every year, and it was the most requested episode of X-Files because they never ran it. Uh, and because it was horrific. Um, but um, it, it really, it really, um, it really was kind of singular in what it did. And I, I, I had lots of fun experiences doing it. And I always thought of the woman um, who played um, the mother of the Peacock voice. I, I was, I called her Dolly because uh, she, she lay under the bed and, and had a little uh, carded thing, a little wheel cut. Uh, I've always enjoyed that film. Um, but I, I really, that was my first trip to Vancouver. I've been many times since then, but that was my very first trip to Vancouver. And it was just beautiful old growth forest, you know, and this is uh, mid 90s. Uh, well, uh, late, late 90s, mid late 90s. Uh, but I really enjoyed myself there and really enjoyed going back. And Kelly Manners, our, our first was brother, the brother of our first one, Space Above and Beyond, um, and uh, just just a lot of a lot of nice people. On that point, actually, we had a question from Paige Schechter, who's uh, a avid part of the XCast, who wanted to ask you specifically about your experience working with Kim Manners. I, you just you reminded me of, of somebody I might have encountered. Here. You know, there was a there was a directness and a, and, and an authenticity to him, and uh, you know we you know he didn't get flustered. Uh, he was used to long hours and stress and pressure. Uh, that's uh, I haven't thought about that before, but that's the closest analogy I can make. Um, he just had that he was seasoned. You know, um, he was the kind of guy you want for a first. That's the kind of guy it takes to succeed. The energy when you see behind the scenes, there's something to it, and it comes through on the episode. Very talented individual. To go back to some of those things you were talking about, from other comments and people that I know who are a fan of your work, in they'll mention that you often play a lot of military characters. Yes, there is a traditional, stereotypical military cadence that performers will often bring in TV and. Well, I, 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 I don't always. I don't always mean the, the drill instructor cadence. That no, no. There is a rhythm to professions, I think. Yes. That may be an idiom, it may be a stereotype, but I know that I, I look for that. I look for that in the text, if the writer had intended it. I look for it uh, for myself as an artist because it's something I can hang my energies and my transitions on. Yes, to clarify, I think you will bring a nuance 
that goes far beyond the stereotype that we're generally seen. Sometimes actors can dehumanize military professionals, especially higher ranked officers. There's such a stiffness. And oftentimes in your performance, there is, through the cadence especially, there is this humanity that comes through. I would hope the word that would come to mind was humanity. I would hope that would be the word. Again, I've described my being before Vietnam as somewhat shut down emotionally. I was, I was dedicated to my work. It was important to me. The mission was important, but there was a temptation to become abstract. I could depersonalize because, well, I, I am now, I, I don't know that I ever, I mean, I was a, I regard myself as a comparatively sensitive person prior to Vietnam, but uh, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was pretty private, but after getting out of the hospital and be, certainly after discovering access to my entire palette of feelings, I realized this, this is, the, this is the essence of life. This is what being alive is. Feeling is what is being alive. And I don't want to give that up, but I don't care if I, some people are embarrassed by my success or whatever. That's not my issue. I, I'm okay with me. I'm okay with feeling because the antithesis is unacceptable to me. I don't want to just get through it. Okay. I look at, I wake up today and say, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed, but I don't want to just get through it. Okay. That's, I don't want to pass time. Life is just too precious for that in my estimation. So in, in, in Millennium, I got to work with Kristen again, and that was lovely. I got to meet Lance, who I, I, I adored from, from his prior work. Um, and so that was very, you know, meeting two people, one of whom I have a, a fondness for and, and, and a respect for, and one of whom I have admiration for. We, we were shooting in this building. It was a psychiatric institution, and it was haunted. There was no question about it. It was fucking money. And I went down there and I I I have I have worked with an addict for some time. Uh, I have always been I have always attracted a lot of attention from the other side. And uh, she was trying to help me to be more proficient and shielded so that I might function better in spite of the attention I draw. But I went downstairs that night, I remember, and going to some rooms, and I just said, no. There's a wonderful commercial on right now. A guy goes up to the attic, and he turns on the light, and he sees all of these strange models and dummies and, and um, people sitting there in his attic. It's a Geico, it's a Geico commercial or whatever, and, and he says, nope. He <laughs> turns off the light, and he goes back downstairs. And... Uh, and I did that. I went downstairs and I uh, and I went down the hall to these empty rooms. And this is an abandoned psychiatric. Uh, you know, it's, it's got the IV on outside and everything else. It's, it's perfect for Gotham. Uh, and we were shooting in that sucker. And I and I got down there and uh, I just felt I just felt the chills. I walk into a room and it's like 15 degrees cooler. As soon as you walk into it, there's no air on there. And I could feel the energy. Nope, nope. Okay, okay. Going, going, going back, going back up. Um, I have, I have enough to satisfy my Jones for this moment. 
I've been through a few, um, I won't say haunted, possessed, embodied, occupied places. I've seen some clearings. Um, I've been present for that. But um, I remember that distinctly from that trip to Vancouver and being in that building. I, I really liked my character. I loved the people that were my, that were my, I don't want to say victims. And I thought what was, it was interesting, Russell, over the years as I encountered people's responses who had seen it, they came out on two different sides as a rule. Those who believed in assisted suicide saw me as an angel of mercy. Those who did not believe in assisted suicide saw me as a demon, as an angel, as, as an agent of evil. And, and it was pretty specific and pretty consistent. I think it was interesting. Very much. I expanding on that with your background and, and your extensive advocacy work dealing with PTSD and the, the things you're talking about before and using acting to process emotions. And that episode deals a lot with issues of depression and hope and you play a crisis counselor when watching it there's there is a real unique empathy coming through your performance and i'm wondering how you felt when you read the script and how you approached some of those very difficult it's true that some things change as we get older but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia brain fog moodiness and weight gain you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Themes, especially considering your knowledge and experiences with them. I think that's a very interesting question. One that hasn't been asked, as I can recall, over the past 24 years. It's the, the character spoke to me. I don't know whether Jim and Glenn incorporated any of their impressions of me into the creating of that character. But it spoke to me, and I, I am, at this point in my life, an empathetic person. I don't know that I would have described myself in that same way prior to 1969. I don't know. But I think it's applicable at this point in my life. It's what so. And um, my training is to be instinctive. My training is to, you know, you hear some voice, you hear sometimes... Cool with it, cool with it, you know, I mean, what is, what is, what is talent? 
If talent is sometimes just having some decent instincts and trusting. Uh, and when you have, when, you, when you're fortunate enough to, um, you know, I mean, if you're a singer, if you're fortunate enough to, to work with gifted composers, then you're probably going to have some success if you're really good. This guy saw people in pain and depending upon your philosophical point of view about life and choices and authority, you either view me as, as an angel who is serving the, 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 the personal wish, which is they're not demented, you know, they're not, they're not deranged, they're not drugged, they are clear of mind and this is their choice, or you view me as someone who is evil, um, who is taking life purposefully, assisting people in ending their lives, which is fundamentally in their estimation evil. And, and they just seem to come out really very consistently on one side or the other. And when I delved at all, that was what was laying underneath. That was their fundamental point of view about life. I just thought that was interesting. Well, I think it's a successful performance. And yes, you're, you're right. A good composer does play a big role. But going back to your experience playing the violin, there is not a clear fret for you to pull it there. And you you have to have that instinct and that training to tell, to balance between those two lines. Because it would be, I'm not an actor, but it seems like it could be really easy to slip onto one side or the other in the performance and convey one or the other. And to kind of rest there in that space the entire episode was what really impressed me. You know, Russell, I believed in what I was doing. I, I, I really bought in. Uh, it wasn't me convincing myself as a character to buy into something that was antithetical to Tucker. Riding the horse in the direction he's walking is, you know, kind of a basic life wisdom thing. And whenever I can use something that is truthful to me in my work, I go for it. Why wouldn't you? Unless it's just antithetical to what the intentions of the people are. Um, what the, one of, among the most confronting things for that role was I'd sing. And I'm not a singer. And, you know, I, 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 I'm i musical. I'm not a singer. You know, you've got Michael Bouvier. You've got people who can fucking sing, that's all. Uh, I would love to be able to sing like that. I would love that. But I don't have that instrument. And my, 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 my instrument has been compromised by my life. And so before I opened for Ian and Sylvia in, in, in Washington, D.C. at the... Um, the cellar door back in the mid 60s. Ian and Sylvia were a group in, in Canada, a senior, a senior group. Um, I was a folk singer in, in college. Once I, once I discovered, I was a violin player in Greece, but you know, violin players who were small and black and wore glasses carrying a violin. You want to get your ass kicked? Do you really? Uh, not particularly. And I had gifts, I had talent. But I didn't have the personal courage or conviction to follow through on it. If maybe if I had encountered someone like Noel Pointer, a gifted young black is a brilliant young man, whose life was sadly shortened by his own difficulties. Uh, but he was brilliant as a musician. And I thought, God, if I had ever heard somebody like this when I was 10 or 12, I don't know, maybe I would have stayed with it. Maybe. 
but I, I, I gravitated to, you know, I played the violin in high school in the orchestra, bass, and then I got to college and I discovered, you know, the Kinson Trio, this is the early 60s, and I'm in Germany, and guitars, and they ain't that hard, and girls like guys with guitars, and what? Let me get a fucking guitar. Yeah, right? And they were right. They, they absolutely did. Um, so I, I, I really enjoyed being a musician, and um, I was, one of my reviews described my voice as a, as a resonant shout, uh, a horse resonant shout. Um, and that was before Vietnam. But the point is, well, among my injuries were a paralyzed vocal cord. During initially, um, before I was rescued or before I could get us extracted, I could only whisper. Uh, I didn't know what was wrong, but the reality was I could only whisper. So I whispered into the radio for 40 minutes. But the point is, when I awoke um, for those first three weeks of Saigon and Fair Field, I had a trach in my throat. So if I wanted to speak, I had to put my finger over the hole. And it was just a hoarse whisper. And, you know, I'm fucking, I have holes, Russell. I'm breathing in and out. So, you know, it's all relative, okay? It's all relative. I'm not expected to perform anytime soon. So right now, I just want to wake up in the morning. I'm fed intravenously for almost three weeks. I'm just working on getting through until Tuesday, okay? And then we'll see about Wednesday. But now it's 26 years later, and you don't look like you're that damaged, and you have to sing with a microphone. And I'm not a singer. I, I'm musical. Uh, one of the reasons I think, aside from the fact that aesthetically it, as it resonated with me, but I think one of the reasons I gravitated to blues and country, the country blues and Delta blues, is that it wasn't so much, it wasn't, you know, Pavarotti operatic. It was feeling, and I have lots of feeling, and I can push in it through my damaged physicality, but I look at people like, Leslie Odom, you know, I look at people like movie. I mean, can you imagine the envy to be able to be, to make music like that? Because it's so beautiful, it's so amazing. Of course I'm envious. But I just said, if you if you get too egotistical about this new method, get to it. I'm, I had the voice that this man had. You know, he wasn't auditioning for Columbia Records. He was sending folks on to the next step. The next days in life. And he, he, he serenaded them as he did. And I tried to do it with as little self judgment as possible. Okay, and that's saying something, okay, because I'm a very judgmental person. Well, it, it was very successful. It does not come across in any other way than exactly as you described. It's great. It's, it's the perfect performance for that role. And what we need to, if somebody, if Michael Bublé was in that role, it wouldn't be real. It wouldn't be right. Well, and it would be kind of sweet that they got that he serenaded by this glorious voice. It would be a fun, surreal David Lynch twist, but I'm not sure it would fit the same script, but I like the idea. You know, if you got, if, if your storyline is, you get sent off to the next space by a guy who's got a, that's such a great voice. Yeah. <laughs> this is pitches in that bad. Yeah. But you know, the quality of his voice 
<laughs> but I think it goes back to you being musical. Most people don't have those standards you have, I don't think. Uh, well, oh, I think most people know the difference between really sucky and really good. Well, there's a lot of people who are kind of sucky who are succeeding these days, so I'm not going to argue that yes. point. But that, that is not how anyone has ever described that performance. A, you're on pitch. It sounds great. It's still a karaoke machine with a campy backing track. So it has all these things that are going to hinder your performance. Well, I don't want to take too much more time, but I, I, if it's okay to just ask you a little bit more about the blues, because watching some of the clips that I could about the, uh, the Tall Tales and some of the other Delta Blues stuff you did, some of the performance, I think it's, it's fabulous. Uh, I'm a, I'm a novice person about the blues. Maybe I'm not as, uh, as, as picky, but I think it, the energy and the emotion that you're talking about really comes through. When was it that you really first connected with that and then transitioned that into the stage? Kind of a broad question. No, it's a fair question. It's an interesting question. When was it? My, my intellect tells me that I really super gravitated to Delta Blues after Vietnam and after my injuries. Because intuitively, I realized your equipment is compromised. The if you can if you can own the genre, the energy, the zeitgeist, mm. uh, and not worry about sounding like Jesse Norman or Pavarotti, get your fucking ego out of the way. You could enjoy. You could you you could you could you could serve. Because I love. I so love the, 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 the singularity of what of these men. Um, you know, it's funny. I was in, God, it's probably been almost 20 years. I was in Vegas like 20 years ago. And I'm listening to an Elton John song in a restaurant and realizing that's fucking 40 years old. When I was 18, I didn't listen to music I was 40 years old. You know, this is very interesting. This idea of classic rock. We can, even today, Listen to Stevie Winwood or Elton John or the Stones or the Beatles or people 60 years. Now imagine that when you were 10 or 12 and go back 60 years. Were you listening to shit from 60 years ago? Of course not. None of us were. So that's what makes classic rock classic in my estimation. It was a specific, special time musically in America and in the world. And I grew up in that time, but I didn't much, I, I listened to jazz. Uh, when I, my, my father was the director of the German American Institute in Regensburg, so I had access to a huge library. And I listened to them, but I loved Oscar Peterson, I loved MJ Pugh, I loved Brubeck, uh, Bobby Timmons, but Thelonious didn't speak to me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there were a lot of jazz musicians that, I just didn't connect to. I just I didn't understand what they were doing. My training was classical. I could listen to blues. I could always find the melody. I could listen to Desmond's solos. Um, I I could listen to MJQ, and their grounding seemed to be also classical. John Lewis, who later wrote a, a script. I mean, the music for a play I did, Mahalia. Um, the the point being, uh, I I, I like some jazz. Um, but I wasn't a jazz devotee because the purest jazz guys didn't speak to me. I couldn't follow them. I just couldn't. Dizzy Gillespie, I, I, I don't get it. Okay? I need melody. And so 
I go back to these guys from the 20s and the 30s, and I remember coming out to California and going to McCabe's, which I think I, I went to see Little Feet, uh, two guys from Little Feet last year. Anyway, uh, Little Feet has been a, a band that I'm very, very fond of for many, many years. And death has been so much a part of RAL for the last 15, 16 years. Anyway, anyway, I'm sorry. Um, I, I listened to these men, and I said, I, I, I feel what I, their, their, their expression, their roughness, their rawness, their primitivity. I don't know, but you know, it's less sophisticated. It's less polished than a lot of the shit. And it, to me, it has, it rings with more authenticity. It's less slick. I like. It seems real to me. That's what, I have emotions, I have a sense of truth, I will say to interpret that. And because my equipment is compromised, perhaps I can get closer to what they did than I can by trying to do Pavarotti or Boulier or someone like that. Um, and I just love the music, the fact that these men couldn't read music. They had these instruments, you know, that were beat up and they got in fights and shit. Their hands were arthritic. You know, they weren't taking one of these vitamins. <laughs> their lives were tough. And, and I read about the. I got to meet some of these men. I got to meet some of these men. Uh, Robert Jr. Lockwood and Johnny Shines, Lyden Hopkins, um, Mississippi John Hurt. Um, they're just delightful human beings. I'm so glad they enjoyed some success later in their lives. Um, what I always found interesting, Russell, was I didn't learn blues from other black men. I learned blues from Jewish kids that were enamored with this music. Those were my teachers. Uh, because people of color seemed, at that time, embarrassed by their lack of sophistication of polish. Um, I wasn't embarrassed. I was enamored by that. I thought it, I, I, I felt it's all interesting. And I was grateful that there were people, regardless of their ethnicity, that cherished the music enough to be able to communicate it to me. But I thought that I've always thought that was interesting, that a, a black man would learn music by black men from an entirely other ethnicity, which was primarily Jewish. Um, there, there are a number of, of blues musicians in my living still, well, or having lived in the last 25 years still, <laughs> many of them, some of them are that. Um, I don't know who their touchstones were. I don't know who guided them. I, I hope they were able to find black precedents, you know, yeah. that could pass it down. But in my time from the 60s on, there weren't many people like that for me. I got to meet the guys who had been rediscovered. They weren't going to be tutoring me. The people that enamored with their music were the young Jewish musicians. And, and I'm sure that some were, were Gentiles as well, but they weren't black. They weren't black. That's what amazes me. At the time, considering how much the blues had influenced all popular music, mm -hmm. at, and then was overshadowed by it, and then it was it almost 
it sounds like it put a wall and make it difficult to to directly access it. How it'd be kind of in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was sort of a a commercial wall from the roots that prevented access. And the fact that you were still able to find a way and make a connection back then is really great. Well, there was, again, it wasn't that coincidental. In 1980, I encountered a guy who came from Colorado, from the mountains of Colorado with an inheritance from his father. He was white, who wanted to make an album of Robert Johnson's music. And I had encountered Robert Johnson at the Guitar Study Center here. And the guy said, okay, now let's call the Robert Johnson tournament. And I said, oh, oh, that's funny. Now in 1981, I began recording a blues album of Robert Johnson's music before those tracks in the vaults of Columbia were ever released on CDs some 10, 15 years later. The music I recorded 40 years ago it's pretty compelling. And I had hoped, we had hoped, this past summer, we were going to be touring in Europe and Russia in blues clubs and having dropped a CD and a, an album, a vinyl album. That didn't come to pass for a lot of reasons, which I'm sure you understand. But I became somehow intrinsically attached to the legend, the mythology of Robert Johnson. And I got to meet Robert Jr. Lockwood, who Robert adopted as a son. It was the son of the woman he lived with. And, and Johnny Shines, who rolled with Robert, and other bluesmen of that, of that era, and talked to them um, and listened to them play. Um, and, they're, they're, you know, so it's, it's been a fundamental part of my past um, that. Um, that is uh, inform me and entertain a few people. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. What a project. Is there still plans, I know with COVID all the rest, to maybe um, release the album online? I, I don't, I really don't know, Russell. Oh, okay. We're all older. Arlen Roth is a, is a legendary guitarist. Hmm. Jerry Jamat has two, um, uh, what do you call them? Not Emmys, um, two, 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 two. Grammys? Grammys, yes, mm -hmm. he does. Played bass player for Respect. Um, oh wow! Okay, and I uh, was Evie Wonder's bass player. Um, well, some of us are gone now. We're dying. The music is whatever it is. There've been, you know, claims about the rights and but I blah, oh, blah, no. blah, blah, blah. Music is the music. I love playing the music. I love showing the music. So I don't. I, I honestly don't know. I am not sanguine about the likelihood. You know, happy days ahead. I'm just grateful to have been attached to the creativity in along my lifeline, my life trail. It was such fun to play, it's such wonderful music. And, and I was hopeful that this summer that might, I might enjoy that some more. I hope something comes to pass soon. I hope we can get out of this mess and you can get out and do some more performing. That would be great. Your lips to God's ears. I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk at all about Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The connection in your work on PTSD, PTSD as it's portrayed in popular media, and also your activism and talking about just healing PTSD and music and art and acting and things like that. But I have have also taken up over an hour of your time. And if you need to get going, uh, that is totally understandable. The the only, the only get going I'm going to do at this moment, Russell, I'm willing to go back to bed because I'm just so diminished and deflated by the events of the last 48 hours. I will hope to arise in a couple of hours to, uh, you know, a brighter day, or maybe not. But when I feel like this, I tend to want to go unconscious. And I, I, I like my dream life better than I do my real life. We, we live in a time, in your lifetime, clearly, because I wasn't diagnosed until 1988. And I came home in 1969. In your lifetime, the diagnosis of PTSD has such currency we apply it to people that maybe had a bad day at home. It's, I don't know. You know, it is what it is. The people who have it, and it's not combat. It's trauma. If you were in a bad car accident, if you were a victim of crime, you were a victim of sexual assault. There's war. There's so many different contexts that can be trauma. The point is, trauma is not a normal reality for the human and we each process it in different ways. I have been medicated for about 20 years. I'm the last 18 months even more medicated. Um, it helps me engage my thoughts and not want to hurt myself and think reasonably rationally. I also meditate twice a day. I pray at night. Um, you know, we, we each will find ways to get through the day with some sanity. But in the reality in which many of us live, not just in America, you have people all over the world who are experiencing refugee conditions and terrorism and people coming in and just killing them and taking their shit and, you know, because they can because they're powerful, because they have guns, because they have political juice. But in America, people have lost their their livelihood. People have lost their confidence in the equitable treatment of the law. People have lost their confidence in the goodwill of their neighbors and their colleagues. We have so many things right now that are assaulting our sense of normalcy. Um, I'm grateful that I'm medicated. You know, I, I quit smoking two months ago. I've smoked for 60 years. And I didn't quit because I wanted to improve the quality of my life, right? I quit because doing the fires, I couldn't breathe anymore. I just couldn't fucking breathe. And I miss my pulmonary. And I hope that I can stay clean with one of any number of vices that I entertain at 76 that 
you know, or impacted the quality of my life. But getting fucking help. I have therapy now on Zoom, but I had a, an in-person relationship with my therapist before we went to Zoom. And I've been in therapy off and on for 50 years, okay? So I know the process. It's still the work that I need to do. Mm. This is nice to have somebody to say, okay, 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 okay. This is bullshit. This is stuff. Okay. You need you need ground zero objectivity. Like, okay, I'm really upset about this shit. So I'm the fuck. But you have to have that, 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 that trust between the two of you. In any case, our, our lives are more sequestered now. We're all on machines. Younger people are on machines. This is as socially deprived um, a time as I can... I feel like... Well, I, I can't say I, it's like I'm being a virgin. No, I've never been in prison. The only thing I could ever compare this to early on in the month was being in prison. I didn't know what the fuck was going to happen tomorrow. It was a good chance was going to be. But I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and, and I mean, that was day after day after day after day after day. Until you got shit. Because <laughs> the five commanders before me last day of the month, so it's just a question now, when are you going to get fucking shot? Well, it'll be sure that day. But the reality, the existential reality of living, today is what? Today is Wednesday. It's the day after Tuesday, the election day. I have an interview with Russell. At 5 o'clock, I'm going to do interview. I'm going to do a, 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 a TM. I'm going to meditate in the group. I love the dynamic. I love the energy of group meditation. But I'm also grateful it's in Zoom because I still cough. And I, I hate to cough in a, in, a, in a mass, in a room of meditators because it's disruptive. I don't want to disrupt anybody. You know, cool. But I still feel the power of the unity of being a part of a larger thing. I think there's something fundamental in a human being about wanting to experience being part of something larger. So we began talking about this because of PTSD. I was part of, for many years, an, an initiative, a 501c3, which is a, a charity initiated by a woman. 17, 18 years ago, who was ready to retire. She was a psychologist, a psychiatrist, was ready. And she went to see a play here in Los Angeles about Marines in pollution. And she was so struck by how broken they were, how much pain they felt. She said, I, I have to do something. And she did. She created a network of caregivers across America who donated their time, pro bono, to treat veterans with PTSD, their loved ones, and the care was open-ended, and the care was confidential. That last one might be as important as any of the first three, because even in the VA system, the care is not confidential. No, it's not. The records exist. Even I have been appalled by, by that reality. But I am, I am an, um, uh, an advocate for treatment, okay? Because I've been a public figure for 50 years, and I'm accustomed to it, and I take, I accept the upsides and the downsides. But the point is, yeah, you might know me from Star Trek or, 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 or X-Files or whatever, but I'm also a Vietnam veteran, and uh, I have a lot of friends who are veterans, Vietnam, World War II, Korea, post-Vietnam, 
they are in pain, some of them. And we can have a statistic of 22 a day take their lives. And whatever you think of, you know, lies, damn lies, and statistics, people run out of time and patience. There is a pleasure pain calculus in life. When the pain is greater than the fucking pleasure, you say, fuck this, turn the lights, man. Gotta be a better world somewhere else. And yes, there probably is. But this one it doesn't have to be as grim as it seems to be. So I signed on to this program to assist, to advocate, to be a face. I wanted to put a face on PTSD, and that's why I published my book. I'm bruised, I'm damaged, I'm, I'm injured. But my physical injuries, as consequential as they are, pale in comparison to my psychic, emotional injuries, which directly affect and adversely affect the quality of my life. If I'm unable to relate to people, to connect with people, to interact with people, if I feel so badly about myself, I just want to go back to, you know, if I'm depressed all the time, and that's what depression is, and it's not just war. You could have been in that car accident, you could have been raped, you could have been assaulted. It, it, trauma is trauma. We ought to be getting better at it because we know that it exists. I don't know that we are better at it. The Soldier Project existed for 16 years at least. I was a board member, I was a donor, I was a fundraiser. It came into life at the same time Wounded Warriors Project came into life. And the Wounded Warriors Project was a just huge, it sucked all the air out of the room. They raised $200, $300 million a year. Well, 55 cents of that money went to veterans, okay? You got $200, $300 million a year. They're spending 45 cents of each dollar on condos and airfares and resorts and conventions and blah, 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 blah. They didn't have a program for PTSD, but they had a brand and they had the ability to flood the airways with slick ads as though going skiing or going rapids or mountain climbing or horseback riding is going to kill your PTSD. No, it was a nice day. I'm sure it was a nice day. I'm happy for you. PTSD gets killed in the closed room with two people, but it's usually involves snot, okay, mm -hmm. and, and, and pain and struggle. And it takes, but there is light at the end of that film. However, they sucked all the air out of the room. The money was not forthcoming. They could have funded us with one half of 1% of what they brought in. But they chose not to. And so now they're the big dog in town. I don't know what they're doing with PTSD, but they're still making commercials about going, um, you know, um, rap rapids or skiing or horseback riding or mountain climbing. And um, veterans are still on when you go home and deal with their thoughts. So I don't want to, I probably do sound bitter. I don't want to sound bitter. I'm just so disappointed that work that was good work, that was solid work, that was absolutely serving people, helping people, healing people, ceased to be possible and available because somebody with a slicker media campaign sucked all the air out of me. But I still advocate, I still am occasionally, I'm always stunned by people who, a woman wrote to me, seeing the fucking military officer, I was stunned, wrote to me to let me know 
she had seen one of the <clears throat> speeches or videos that I had posted for people that said, I thought for the first time someone was talking to me rather than at me. Mm. That was, that was affirming to hear that because whenever someone asks me, will you do this? Yeah, sure. Of course. I like to think, come on, I've been home 50 years. There's a lot of more since then. There are younger generations who can speak to the generations now. They probably want to hear from somebody in their 40s or 50s rather than years. And I'm not trying to take up airspace, but I hope guys will step up and um, you know, take on the mantle. But as, as long as I'm able, you ask me to speak to me, I'm I'm willing to speak. I appreciate the insight and um, care that you exhibited. I, I feel not exploited. I feel enabled, and I and I appreciate that very much. Thank you very much. That's beautifully said. And it's a if I can restate or go back to the point about being bitter. I think I would interpret it as anger, and it's justified in the situation that we have continued to ignore. Not ignore, but not help the people to the degree that they deserve and need. And there's so much work that needs to be done. And, and I didn't mean to frame the question. I, I did and eloquently put it on your shoulders, but you have a extensive background in, in the field and knowledge. And I really appreciate you sharing, sharing your thoughts. And as part of this interview with you, because I don't get paid for this and you're doing this kindly out of your generosity of your time, we ask our, our guests to nominate a charity or a, an action that our listeners who listen to this podcast can do? I, I belong to a number of veterans organizations. Uh, I don't think they need anyone's help. I published my book to help explain the families of veterans, sons, husbands, fathers, how we've changed some of the reasons why we've changed. I think I would encourage people to look within their own communities there's very few communities here in America that don't have veterans. Some of them, many of them, constitute some of their homelessness. Mm-hmm. They have, they're homeless because they have issues. They have mental issues. They have emotional issues. They may have chemical issues. Mm-hmm. But those issues have arisen largely because of their service. So to the extent that you can be supportive of an effort or initiative where you live for young men and women who have been uh, sexually assaulted, MSP, who have been traumatized by their service at war, I would encourage you to do. Fabulous. Thank you once again for taking this time and also to share all of these emotions in your acting, putting all this effort in, like you're saying, creating a, a moment and a community space. And I think a lot of the performances you've done, the humanity and the empathy, even in stuff that people write off as being genre television, has such a depth and importance and can provide a lot of growth and healing for a lot of people. I want to thank you for all of your work that you've shared with us artistically over the years, which you'll continue to and uh, again, for taking the time to speak with me. And Russell, thank you for your patience and your insights. Uh, I enjoyed this process. I've done a lot of these, and uh, this was certainly one of the more pleasurable ones. You'd be well. It's been an honor and a pleasure. You take care. Thank you so much. Great to talk with you.
Thank you for listening to the interview with Tucker Smallwood. As mentioned in the interview, if you enjoyed the interview and you want to give back a little bit for the time that he shared with us, he requested that you support a local charity that deals with PTSD or veterans issues, something in your area that's related to that. If you'd like to learn more about his work and including the book that was mentioned in the interview, Return to Eden, you can go to tuckersmallwood.com. So it's an easy to remember URL. Thank you once again. And remember as always, trust no one. Elsewhere on We Made This. By 1989, I'd actually landed a job working at a fashion PR agency called Lynn Frank's PR. This particular issue is memorable to me because it was our first smash its cover for our client, uh, Nana Cherry. They never told you if you, you'd get a cover or not. There'd always be this, this kind of cat and mouse. Well, you know, we'll look at it as a great feature and we'll have to have our own shoot and we'll have to do this. Da, 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 da. And then there's quite a long period of negotiation and you never really knew if you got the cover until it came out. And I remember, you know, when you go down and see it on the newsstand, it was a fantastic feeling. It just felt like, you know, this is my sort of goal in extra time to win the FA <laughs> Chucky Vision, a Chucky podcast. The introduction, the editorial, if you will, was written by David Campetti, and it shows real love and isn't shy about having a dig at cheap-ass, lazy film adaptations. Yeah, Capetti is an interesting one as the, the, the co-founder of Innovation and also the editor. Yeah, a lot of his editorials are hawking other merch, hawking, you know, the different books and stuff they're putting out. But it never felt too corporate. He, he has a passion in his voice that he very much is enthusiastic and enjoys that they're getting to adapt these franchises. It does seem like he's definitely acquired Chucky because he's a fan. Red and Berry podcast. The theme this month was an Anne Rule book, so True Crime, but not The Stranger Beside Me, which is her big book that broke her, you know, broke the world of true crime fiction. Not fiction, non-fiction. True crime fiction, I just said. That's not a sentence. Yeah. He fell in love. Oh. He's so in love, but still not in love enough to stop using sex workers. Yeah. But in love enough to not murder them. So. Okay. He's a romantic, is what I'm saying. Yeah, what a man. What a dreamy man. Um, but his actual name was Robert Knickerbocker. Wow. Which is like the best surname ever. Do you think maybe she thought no one's going to believe this is a real name? Well, yeah, that could have been it. If I'm wrong, please don't correct me. I don't want to. <laughs> right. Thank you. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. The Xcast and X Files podcast was created by Tony Black and is produced and hosted by Carl Sweeney, Sarah Blair and Kurt North. You can find the podcast on Twitter at the X underscore cast, on Facebook by typing in the Xcast, and in our group, X-Files Basement, the Xcast podcast fan group, and on Instagram at the Xcast pod. Don't forget, you can support the show by becoming a member on Patreon. Our patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes chats with our hosts and a thriving community of X-Files, and other premium interviews and specials. To find out more and subscribe, you can go to patreon.com slash the Xcast. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Xcast. We are also part of the We Made This Podcast Network, full of popular culture shows, including our Millennium series, The Time Is Now. You can find all of our shows at our website, wemadethispod.com, or via Twitter at WeMadeThisPod. Thanks for listening, and keep watching the skies. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.